0: You're listening to LawPod UK. It's a podcast that covers all aspects of civil and public law in the United Kingdom. All comments are current at the time of publication. It's a podcast that's brought to you by the barristers at One Crown Office Row.
1: And this edition is presented by Rosalind English. Amidst the turmoil at Westminster this week, a new British Bill of Rights repealing and replacing the 1998 Human Rights Act going through Parliament. This follows the government's manifesto commitment in the 2019 election to update the Human Rights Act. There is a great deal of heat around the debate, with supporters of the bill celebrating British ownership of rights and detractors claiming that Number 10 is systematically eroding people's rights in an attempt to make itself untouchable by the courts. Depending on which side of the debate you're on, the reaction to the Bill of Rights is either one-sidedly hostile or justifiably fearful that serious inroads will be made into British citizens' enjoyments of the rights set out in the European Convention. It's important that a serious and constructive discussion is had about this Bill, and that is what I'm seeking to do with my guest today, Andrew Warnock QC of One Chancery Lane, Andrew specialises in public authority claims with particular expertise in social services, education, child abuse, highways, human rights and the police. Andrew, thank you very much for agreeing to come on LawPod UK. It's a pleasure, Rosalind. Is it fair to say, Andrew, that you have spent much of the last 20 years or so defending public authorities against claims brought under the Human Rights Act? A fair proportion of my time, yes. So, just a very general question to start off with. Do you, in that capacity, welcome the new bill as it's set out?
0: I do welcome it. I think there is room for improvement in how human rights operate in this country. And I think the bill is a, a laudable attempt
1: to achieve that. It has been proposed as an entirely new act, repealing the Human Rights Act. But do you think there would be merits in simply amending the Human Rights Act instead?
0: Well, in a sense, I think the new bill, although it replaces the Human Rights Act, does take what was in the Human Rights Act and build upon it and amends it. So I think whether you say it's a replacement or an amendment... In a way, it's a matter of nomenclature. What this bill is doing is not throwing away what was there under the Human Rights Act, but seeking in certain areas to improve it or clarify it and rebalance it.
1: Let's get into the meat of what the bill has to say. And one of the first... Things that you notice when you read it is that the centrality, the paramountcy, if you like, of the sovereignty of Parliament. Can you describe how the Bill achieves that and why indeed that is needed?
0: Yes. So, Clause 7 of the Bill of Rights requires the courts, when deciding incompatibility questions, to treat Parliament as having decided that the Act strikes the relevant balance between, for instance, competing rights or competing issues of social or economic policy, and to give great weight to that factor. And it requires the courts to give the greatest possible weight to the fact that in a parliamentary democracy, decisions about how such matters are to be balanced are really first and foremost matters for Parliament, which is the elected institution.
1: There, there was a very important case which comes up in the discussion about this new bill, Ilan Kane. I'll give the full citation in the accompanying blog post. Can you tell us what happened, what was said in, in that case?
0: Yes, facts of that case concerned the question of whether the passport office was required to issue a gender-neutral passport, because when you apply for your passport, you have to state whether you're male or female. And the applicant's position was that they had no gender and were gender-neutral, and wanted to have that option. And the Supreme Court held that, in fact, it was lawful for the passport agency and the Secretary of State to maintain a position that one has to be either male or female on the passport. But the Supreme Court looked quite widely at the principles of interpretation which should be applied under the Human Rights Act and said that where the European Court of Human Rights says that something is within the margin of appreciation of a country, of a member state, in other words, one of those areas where there may be differing views across differing societies, room for different opinions on whether a right should exist or not. If the European Court of Human Rights would take the view that something that's claimed is within the margin of appreciation, then essentially the European Court of Human Rights is saying that there isn't a breach of the Convention if you don't allow that thing. And that in such cases, therefore, there is no breach of the Convention and it's a matter for the domestic authorities whether to go further than the convention or not. And in our system, recognising the importance of Parliament, it's first and foremost a matter for Parliament whether we should go further than a convention. So that was one of the things the court decided. And the other thing the court reverted back to a principle which was has been present in some of the older cases, right from a case called Ulla, is that our courts should not go ahead of the European Court of Human Rights in finding rights under the Convention, unless really very confident that the European Court of Human Rights would find such a right. Again, that's consistent with allowing a margin of appreciation and uh, uh, allowing the input of domestic legislators into the content of rights.
1: And closely related to this topic is, of course, the interpretive role of the courts under Section Three of the 1998 Act, and the case of Gaiden Mendoza comes up a lot once again. Can you tell us why? Well, the
0: controversy with the Gaiden case was that the Supreme Court took the view that where an act, a provision of an Act of Parliament, was inconsistent with a convention right in that court's judgment, even where the wording of the provision in question was plain, the court should interpret the provision in a way which was inconsistent. And so one could end up with what the Supreme Court accepted would be unreasonable interpretations of legislation in order to make them compliant with the convention potentially pieces of legislation being interpreted to mean the opposite of what you or I would think they meant if we read them. I find that problematical because one of the things about the law is it ought to be readily ascertainable by members of the public. And if you can't look at what an Act of Parliament says and take it at face value, but have to read it alongside a lengthy judgment, perhaps more than one lengthy judgment, From the Supreme Court, then it seems to me that the law is not readily ascertainable and not easy for citizens to follow or understand.
1: Absolutely. And again, a closely related topic concerning the predictability of the law, if you like, is positive obligations on public authorities and states under the European Convention of Human Rights. Once again, the bill seeks to tamped down on courts' abilities to come up with new and positive obligations. Can you give me an example of, or examples of such obligations that have come up in the past?
0: Yes, so the the convention contains the rights which all of us would agree with and that no one could dispute, such as the right to life, for instance, is a, a really important one. Positive obligations have been read into the convention by the court so that the court has interpreted, for instance, the right to life to mean not just that the state should not take life, not just that the state should have systems and laws in place which protect life, but that in certain circumstances the state can be held liable if there are operational failings by a public authority in protecting life. So that's an example of a positive Obligation, which has been found under the Convention by the European Court of Human Rights.
1: And other examples, such as police and social service departments and local authorities being sued for not removing children quickly enough or being sued for removing them too quickly, all of this is unpredictable and makes running these public services quite difficult. Is that your experience?
0: Yes. So it, it, it's... Quite common for the police now to be sued under the doctrine of a case called Osman in the United Kingdom, which was the court which was the European court case which found this right under Article Two. And so the police will often find themselves being sued for failing to protect somebody who says that they might be at risk. And often the people most at risk will be people involved in criminal activities themselves, not always, obviously, but The police time is therefore often diverted into issuing protective measures to people who may be at risk, quite often putting themselves at risk. As I say, that's not always the case. In relation to social services, social services have found themselves sued on the one hand for not taking children into care quickly enough, and on the other hand for taking them into care too quickly And obviously, these decisions involve very delicate and difficult judgments and balances for the people concerned who are making them. Often, they don't have the full picture of the facts. Often, it's easy to look back in hindsight and say, well, something could have been done differently. And the issue with positive obligations is, and there's a perfectly respectable argument to say that there should be positive obligations because they vindicate rights and they ensure rights are meaningful On the other hand, there are perfectly respectable arguments against them, which is that they do distort um, policing priorities, for instance, because they lead to a focus on certain types of rights. They do take up a lot of time in retrospective reanalysis of police investigations and social service investigations, time that might be better spent protecting people at current risk, And they do divert a lot of resources in terms of compensating from today's budget to pay for the mistakes made in yesterday's. So there are arguments about these. And I suppose one of the issues is whether, in fact, some of these arguments would be better decided by society as a whole through Parliament as to where they think the boundary of positive rights should lie or whether, as has been the direction of travel by the European Court of Human Rights, these rights are held to be immutable and, and not challengeable.
1: And we've got, become used in the last 20 years to having these two systems of law, liability under the common law and rights under the Human Rights Act. And I think it was Lord Reed who said in Robinson and West Yorkshire Police and the Supreme Court, that the common law does not, as a general rule, impose tortious liabilities on private or public bodies for acting ineffectively to protect a person from the criminal acts of a third party, which is precisely what Osman and its subsequent case law has done. So just moving on to how the bill proposes to reign back these sorts of expansions of rights. It proposes a permission stage before someone can bring a claim for breach of any of the Convention rights. How does it seek to to go about this?
0: Uh, The bill contains, at Clause 15, the introduction of a permission stage where you have to show substantial disadvantage as well as the fact that you are a victim to bring a claim. And in fact, I'm Surprised, there is much controversy ab- about this, in because this really reflects the position in that was brought into the convention itself by the Protocol F- Number 14 back in 2004, which amended Clause 35.3 of the convention to say that a, a, a claimant must normally have suffered significant disadvantage. And that's what Clause 15 reflects. It's a test, really, to weed out you know, the sort of frivolous claims, the claims by people who are, are perhaps misusing the Human Rights Act to say that they've they've not got something that they wanted. And as I say, the the European Court of Human Rights has a similar mechanism in really out nice cases at the admissibility stage.
1: So the proposers of the bill are doing no more than reflecting what the European Court of Human Rights has already done with its protocols?
0: Certainly, that's how I see it, as what the high contracting states have done with their protocols.
1: Once you've got through the victim threshold and you've established that you can bring a claim, how does the bill deal with quantification of damages in the future? The bill makes
0: some significant amendments to the quantification of Damages really by giving the court some steers as to how to approach the issue. The first amendment the bill makes is that the person must have suffered loss or damage. Now, what is not clear about this is whether this affects cases where the European Court of Human Rights are under the Convention as previously applied under the Human Rights Act the courts would have awarded damages where somebody has suffered non-pecuniary loss, which is not recognised as loss and damage of the common law. That may be something that will be clarified as the bill pre- proceeds. Because there are cases, for instance, where somebody's parole hearing has been delayed, where the European Court of Human Rights would say damages should be awarded for any distress simply caused by the delay and our domestic courts have taken that view in cases such as Faulkner, Sternham against the Secretary of State and the Parole Board. So that, it's unclear whether that is a change which the bill is intending to make or not. But beyond that, the bill requires the, the courts to take into a number of factors, both when deciding whether to award damages at all and if it does so decide in deciding their amount, and these include the conduct of the claimant, anything that the public authority had done to try and avoid acting incompatibly with a human right, the seriousness of the breach of the human right, any other remedy which the complainant has received from another court or will receive from the court determining the human rights issue, and the consequence of any other decisions the court has made in respect of the Act. And the court is also required under 18 to take account and give great weight to the impact of an award of damages on the ability of a public authority to perform its functions. In doing that, it seems to be seeking to strike a balance between redress and the public purse more generally. And in fact, the need for such a balance was highlighted as long ago as 2003 by Lord Wolfe in the Anifregeva and London Borough of Southwark case.
1: So we've covered quite a large area here that, as far as I see it, that the bill seeks to put on a statutory footing the relationship between rights and responsibility, but also the impact on the operation of public authorities, then you're at the coalface here. It's not only a problem of damages, is it? It's a a question of costs. Is that correct?
0: Yes, the bill doesn't seek to, in any way, address costs. But there is, in my experience, an issue that quite often human rights... Damages where they're sought can be comparatively modest. The costs of obtaining them are not often disproportionate to the amount at stake. If one takes, for instance, claims involving local authorities, social care provision, the the disclosure and costs of disclosure can be can be vast.
1: What well, we haven't addressed the other kind of public body under the Human Rights Act which is judges or people acting in a judicial capacity. Once again, the Bill of Rights seeks to change this position. Why, why is that?
0: Well, I think what the Bill of Rights is doing, actually, is codifying a recent decision from the European Court of Human Rights, allowing damages to be awarded in, circumstance, in certain circumstances where judges have breached the Right to a fair, even if the the, the court has acted in good faith. So, to that extent, it's adding an, an additional right. I'm not. I, I don't think it's making any significant changes beyond that.
1: So, simply taking away the the, the creation of new rights by capturing courts within the Article Six public authority definition. Yes. Moving on to criminal proceedings. How does the Bill of Rights approach the questions of convention claims when the claimant, or rather the person claiming a breach of convention claims, is a defendant in a criminal trial? Well, it
0: it doesn't, with the exception that in relation to freedom of speech, issues as to whether a particular statutory provision is convention compliant are not covered by the amendments the Bill makes to freedom of speech. But the Bill does not... contain anything which reduces the rights of anyone in a criminal trial
1: so it doesn't as one of the arguments or proposals for amendments say that you cannot as a defendant as a defense in your in the criminal proceedings say that the decision to prosecute was in breach of my convention rights That's still a problem at large. I'm thinking of the Ziegler case.
0: No, it doesn't, as I read it, seek to address the Ziegler case. For for listeners, the Ziegler case, Ziegler and the DPP, concerned what some might have regarded as a fairly straightforward question of prosecution for obstruction of the highway, with a fairly straightforward question as to whether the obstruction or not was reasonable because those obstructing it said that they were obstructing it as an expression of their freedom of conscience related to protests against the arms industry. And that's a factor that the jury could no doubt take into account or they when deciding whether or not they were guilty of the offence. However, the Ziegler case has resulted in quite a complex intellectual exercise, which has to be gone through, certainly as I see it, too complex for me <laughs> as to whether the... There, there is a defence under the Human Rights Act, which means the prosecution shouldn't have been brought at all in the first place. And I, I think one of the judgments poses five questions, one with four or five sub-questions. It, it, it's an issue not addressed by this bill, but certainly, as somebody who favours simplicity in the law, some improvement of it at some point is something I personally would welcome.
1: Certainly it has been proposed as an amendment. Another kind of criminal now, and the very, very thorny question of the government's ability to remove foreign criminals from the country. The bill yes. definitely addresses that, doesn't it?
0: It does, yes. So the, the bill at Clause 8 says, limits the rights of people to plead reliance on Article 8 and their family life, in response to deportations. And where there's a clear legislative provision concerning deportation, it's not to be held incompatible with Article 8 unless the provision would require the individual to be treated in a way that would cause harm, which is said to be so extreme that it would override the otherwise paramount public interest in deportation. And the bill goes on to say that harm will only be extreme if it is exceptional and overwhelming and cannot be mitigated to any significant extent. The bill also proposes changes in relation to the deportation and reliance on Article 6, where people are being extradited, and says that essentially where assurances have been given and received by the exact by where assurances have been given by the country to which the person is to be extradited and those assurances have been accepted by the secretary of state the court must accept those assurances ex- save in the most exceptional of cases and must accept that the trial would be fair in the other country
1: so that's article 8 right to family life and article 6 the right to access to justice and a fair trial, wrapped up in the context of deportation. Another move the the bill makes is to rein in the extraterritorial effects of the Act. How does it propose to do that?
0: Well, as I read the bill, the government recognises that it's got a problem with this, in that the European Court of Human Rights has held that there is an extra extraterritorial effect to the Act and that it applies where British forces are operating overseas and that's been confirmed by the Supreme Court in this country in al and the government is proposing it seems in the Bill that it will take extraterritorial claims outside the Act so people will no longer be able to bring claims under the Act but It's proposing to introduce some form of alternative arrangement for people to make claims relating to alleged breaches overseas in military operations. And until it does that, it won't bring this provision into force. And in the meantime, it's going to seek to get a consensus amongst the contracting states to deal with this issue at the Council of Europe level. The issue here, of course, is that there is a debate to be had as to whether a Convention on Human Rights of this nature is the right one to be governing military operations abroad, which are covered by a host of international conventions and treaties relating to the conduct of war, not least the Vienna conventions. So the, the issue here is one, there's no doubt room for a range of opinion on, but does it, is, is it right that what's essentially the Human Rights Act, which is concerned, was, was it seems intended to originally apply to people within the territories of the contracting states, is being used to govern how matters are conducted in overseas territories where there is either British forces are engaged in operations either on war or in terms of supporting governments in those countries.
1: I understand that some experts say that this development of extraterritorial jurisdiction is in fact inconsistent with the Vienna Convention. So yes, yes. I mean, there are plenty, plenty of range of opinions about that. The interim measures issued by the Strasbourg Court, and of course we've all, we all know about the Rwanda flight. As I understand it, there moves afoot to disregard these interim measures. Is that correct?
0: The bill contains a provision that any interim injunction issued by the European Court of Human Rights will not have domestic effect. Obviously, this is a a hot topic. One thing that does slightly surprise me about the decision of the European Court in the Rwanda case is that, that one doesn't have a published judgment and it's not clear who made the decision. So I can can see their arguments in both ways in relation to that.
1: Certainly there's a lot of support for that interim measure and from the same quarter, critics maintain that as a matter of international law the Strasbourg Court is the ultimate judicial authority on convention rights. Where do you stand on the supremacy or otherwise of the Supreme Court as opposed to the Strasbourg Court?
0: Well, domestically, it's the Supreme Court, which is the rear court in which it ranks higher than Strasbourg. And we have a dualist system, which means that treaties only become part of our law insofar as they're enacted by Parliament. And in Secretary of State for the Home Department against F back in 2009, I think. Lord Scott pointed out that it is open to Parliament to enact legislation which would be incompatible with the treaty obligation. And then, of course, it would be the duty of the Supreme Court to apply the law as it is in this country. I'm not saying that's what's happened here, but I'm just saying that as a matter of theory, the Supreme Court is certainly higher, is the highest authority in this country.
1: This may be rather unfair, and I don't expect you to come up with an absolutely accurate and precise answer. But what do you think the chances of the Bill of Rights, as it stands, getting through Parliament?
0: Gosh, that is a difficult question, and no doubt driven by all sorts of uncertainties that there are in the political realm at the minute. What I can say is I hope it does get through Parliament. I don't think it's as radical as people are suggesting it is. I think it is a a proper attempt to try and ensure that there is a codified balance on two levels. First of all, between the role of our own Supreme Court and our courts, as opposed to the role of the European Court of Human Rights, and trying to define within what the Convention allows an area for within the margin of appreciation in relation to some of the rights we've talked about. And there is a new focus, I think, to be tested in relation to the margin of appreciation with a protocol agreed last August, Protocol 15, which re-emphasises the importance of subsidiarity and the margin of appreciation. That's the first area which the bill seems to me to be seeking to address. Not in a radical way, it's not throwing out the entire convention, it's simply trying to adjust elements of it. Secondly, it's seeking to codify the relationship between our own courts and parliament. And it does seem to me, as somebody who believes strongly in democracy, it is important that in areas where There is rights are contested, there's room for competing judgments as to whether a particular right trumps another one, or in areas of social policy or economic policy. It seems to me it's really important that these decisions, which are not in truth often matters of law, are made by elected politicians and so that everybody in society has their say in them. And that seems to me likely to bring a bigger buy-in from the public as well once those rights are decided. So I think in those aims, the bill is to be welcomed. And, you know, no doubt there will be some amendments to it. There are some areas where no doubt further clarification could be given. I do hope it is enacted for those reasons.
1: Well, thank you, Andrew. I think that's a very good place on which to end. We've covered a lot of ground. And I will, of course, put up the full citations of all the cases you've referred to on the blog post that will accompany this podcast when it goes out. So thank you for coming on to LawPod UK. It's been a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Thank you, Rosalind, Andrew. LawPod UK is presented by Rosalind English
1: and produced by one Crown Office row.